And now it's time to bait our hooks, cast our nets, drop our poles in the water, and fish for some jokes with Down on the Dock. We're back. Welcome to. He was doing this in the mirror before he started. Welcome to episode forty-eight of Down on the Docks, everybody. Uh, my name's Chris Neff, uh, joined as always by my friend, uh, co-host, and uh, producing partner Dave Sarah. How are you, buddy? Hello. Uh, special show for us today. Obviously, yep. it's July fourth. Yep. Little pre-warning. Yep. I live in Long Beach. Yep. And it's madness down here. Fireworks. I'm so surprised they haven't started yet. The cats have been um, isolated. And uh, eating, if you hear some booms, butt. <laughs> we've got a butt-eating issue with one of my cats. <laughs> and uh, if you hear a little uh, sonic booms in the background, uh, don't worry. We are not under attack. It's just Long Beach on the 4th of July. So before we get started, if you're just joining us, <clears throat> uh, you got to back up. Why, Dave? Because last week's episode was part one. That's right. This is part two of Deep Water, a film directed by Louise Osmond and Jerry Rothwell. So if you are just finding us right now, hit hit the backups uh, and uh, go check out 47 so you can jump into part one. Before we begin, Dave, uh, why do we do this podcast? What is this show all about? Um, The listeners. <laughs> Of course, there is yes. no show without our listeners. That's right. So we want to thank you all for taking the time to listen. And not only that, taking the time to find us on Instagram. Yes. At where, Dave? Instagram, you can find us on Down on the Docks Pod, and on if, Twitter. And if you're a tweeter. Down on the Docks at Down on the Docks. Yep. <laughs> down on the Docks at gmail.com. Jump on there. Jump on there. Give yep. us an ad. And if you want to find our personals, I'm Chris Neff Comedy. Uh, mm-hmm. And Dave is what these I'm, days? I'm on Twitter. I'm Dave Exhale because I have my old Quake name. And then, of course, if you want to join the Discord, the link is in the bio. Okay. Actually. Yes. We was brought to my attention the, uh, yeah. a couple days ago. So now, apparently... Um, Discord is uh, if you're like a community that's private, like we are. Yeah, doesn't let you have um permanent links. So I gotta look into that. See if there's a way to either um change that with a okay, either a uh, something. We'll figure it out. Great. Other Another that, thing that won't get done. I, I <laughs> as long as that list just keeps getting longer and longer, uh, you know, I'm happy. Well, so basically, I'm just gonna have I just create a new link every week. Okay, so gotcha. it's always check, best to check the newest week's episode. Got it. And here's the most important thing. If you do want to send us an email because you don't use any of this social media shit, and I don't believe you, blame me for not, send us an email at down, down on the docks pod at gmail.com. That's down on the docks with one C at mm-hmm. gmail.com. VOCS. Dave, would you like to tell our listenership who this week's episode is sponsored by? This week's episode of Down on the Docks is brought to you by Broccoli Farms, established in 2016 San Diego, California by cannabis entrepreneur Anthony Bird. Broccoli Farms is a modern take on cannabis brands around the world. By combining new terminology involving cannabis worldwide, Anthony created a cannabis brand that uniquely represents the entire cannabis industry as one. Broccoli Farms. Are you sure it's not cannabis industry as four, maybe? The lowest delivery minimum in San Diego, fair prices and quality products makes Broccoli Farms one of the best deliveries in San Diego for almost a decade. Be sure to mention, we got to change that to a decade. 
pretty yeah. soon. Yeah, good point. <laughs> Be sure to mention Down the Dogs podcast for 15% off your next order, along with first-time patient gifts and rewards. Fuck that pussy. <laughs> Check them out today on Instagram at broccolifarm619 and daves.sarah. All right. Awesome job as always, Dave. Just to reiterate, let's do a little brief recap. Um, okay. So, you know, I've told you this is one of my favorite docs of all time. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Deep water. Obviously, we made it through the entire episode or the entire doc in episode one. But, right. But because there's so much juicy information, the juice, we are extending a second part, an addendum, if you will. Because it's a sailing story. I love seamen. Yep. And there's... I want to know about the boats. You're going to know. Here's what we're going to do. Yeah. As soon as I give a little recap, we're going to go we got right charts into the there. boats. I like we got it. charts, boats, everything. I got fucking tide information, all kinds wow. of fun stuff. Just to reiterate, Deep Water was about the Sunday Times Global Race, uh, which we know was a single handed round the world yacht race held in 68 and 69 uh, and was the first of its kind. So obviously we had, uh, how many entrants was it, Dave? Uh, I thought a 13, nine, nine, I was nine entrants. Eight. And of course the film, uh, Deepwater centers around the demise of Donald Crowhurst, who right. we're pretty sure committed suicide. Right. But um, there was only ended up being one finisher of the race, Robin Knox Johnson, who, of course... America, baby. Nope, he was British. Oh, what? So, of course, he won for fastest time uh, as well as first. Yeah. So, <clears throat> as we were speaking in last week's episode, you're like, I need information on the boats. And, yeah, I want to know what kind of boats. And I'm know. a boat guy. Are you? So, of course, I used to sail, which we'll get into later. Um, <laughs> so, let's go over these competitors. We had John Ridgway. Okay. Now... Well, no, give me their countries also. Yeah, uh, British. Okay. So John Ridgway and Che Blythe, okay. they both entered the race separately. But They're what's, friends? They're friends. And what's important to know is that before they entered this race, they rowed a boat across the Atlantic Ocean. Oh, how cute. Yeah. How long do you think that would take? Three weeks. Across the Atlantic Ocean? Three months. It took the Titanic like 12 days, didn't it? Well, they didn't get it. I don't it. know. Uh, yeah, it was 92 days. 92 days. Okay. I have a friend, not a friend, my my cousin's husband literally took a boat, like a yacht like that, from uh, New York to London. Yeah. They're like, are you freaking crazy? Yeah. They're like, you're lucky you're white. Yeah. He's like, yeah, yeah, I'm lucky. But keep in mind, these guys did a rowboat. Well, that's crazy. Yeah. So, rowboat. Oh, shit. They rowboated? Yes. I didn't hear that part of it. That's because you're baked. I thought you said a, they... Okay. They yes. took a rowboat That's from England to the United States. That's fucking nuts. Yeah, just three two months. Of them. Yeah. Wow. So Ridgeway and Blythe, who entered this race, they'd already had massive rowboating experience. To say the least. So let's get back to Ridgeway. His boat was called the English Rose Four. You know what the English Ro Rose Three was? No. The fucking rowboat. Was it really? Yeah. <laughs> nice. So he took it was the Two or the three. And one yeah. of the ro rowboats was called the English Rose. So Ridgeway, he had um, uh, a 30-foot westerly 30 sloop. Now, okay. you know what a sloop is, nope. right? Well, a sloop is a sailboat with a single mast. Okay. So uh, you basically have the single mast, and then you have one head sail in front of the mast and a main sail aft, okay, behind right. the mast. 
So that's what he decided to uh, take, a 30-footer. Then let's get to his partner, uh, Che Blythe. Okay. Um, he uh, was the robo guy right. as well. So he took out the Ditiscus 3, huh? which was also a 30-foot sloop. Okay. So basically similar boats. Yeah. Then we have uh, uh, RKJ. Okay. Robert Knox Johnson, Got winner it. of the race. Right. His boat was called the Suhali. Okay. And it was a 32-foot catch. What's that? Catch is a two-masted sailboat. Ooh. So you have the main mast taller than the mizzen mast or okay. the aft mast. Right. And uh, it also means the mizzen mast is step forward of the okay. rudder post. Okay. Okay? Interesting. So, I can imagine the different types in my head. Yep. So then we have uh, Locke Fogeron. Okay. Uh, he was a Frenchman. He had uh, a... Th- uh, he fl- he he sailed on the Captain Brown, and that was a thirty foot gaff cutter. Okay, what's a gaff cutter? Well, a gaff rig is a sailing rig. It's a configuration of sail of mast and stays in which the sail is four cornered, uh-huh. fore and aft rigged, uh, controlled at its peak and usually its entire head by a spar called the gaff. Oh, so what would you? <laughs> that sounded like medical information almost. Exactly. I read that and I'm like, don't know what it means. I mean, I was on a sailboat when I was a Boy Scout probably 20 years ago. Okay. No. More than that. Okay. So, like, you know, 25 years so you've ago. You've got experience. I remember some of the stuff, the knots and all that stuff. I, I don't remember so much of like the different type of boats all that much, but it's interesting. Okay. And then my personal hero, uh, uh, Montessier. Yeah, Montessier. What he kind of boat he sailed on a boat named the Joshua. Mm. Now, a little bit larger. These are all 30 foots that we've spoken right? about pretty much. His was a 39 foot catch. Ooh, you got an extra 10 feet there almost. Yeah. And for his uh, extra Christmas meal. Well, it gets bigger. Bill King, hmm. he took a Galway Blazer, or his boat was called the Galway Blazer 2. It was a 42-foot. Oh, shit. Junk schooner. Uh, now, we got two more things we got to talk about. Let's start with a schooner. Damn. Because I used 40-foot boat by yourself, 42. huh? 42-foot boat. Because I used to sail on a schooner. Okay. So a schooner is a type of vessel defined by its rig, okay? Okay. So you have uh, the fore and aft what rig. What is a rig? The sta- The sails. Got it. You have a fore and aft rig on all of two or more masts. And in the case of a two-masted schooner, which is what I sailed on, uh, the foremost generally being shorter than the main mast, which is true. Okay. So, um, yeah, 42-foot boat, pretty impressive. Yeah. Um, well, now, a junk, now, a junk, in case you don't know. Uh-huh. You know what junk is? Yeah. A junk is basically... They're very popular in uh, uh, Chinese culture. Okay. So a junk is, a, in, you, can you picture the, the mast and sure. then you have the sails? Okay. So what they do is they use wooden beams inside of the sail. Okay. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Okay. Then, remember Tester, the tester, Nigel? Um, He's the, the guy tester. that went down. Yes. R- right as. Yes, yes, yes. Like yeah, he's yeah. hit. Close, like just a couple days away. Right, right, well, right. The one that the, he, he was hoping that would win it, and yeah, the one uh, Nigel, not, the Crow, Crowhurst was hoping Crows, the guy Crowhurst was hoping would win it. Correct. So his boat was called the Victress. It was a forty foot trimaran. 
similar to Crowhurst. What's a trimaran again? Trimaran is three holes. Three holes. Yeah. Aha. Three separate holes. Yeah, 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 yeah. So uh, he, had, he had a 40 foot. Uh, it was pretty much the same uh, size as Crowhurst. 40 foot. And then lastly, listen to this. Old Alex Carrazzo, um, he, he was the Italian. He had a boat called the Gancia Americano, and it was a 66-foot catch, hmm. which is pretty damn big. So yeah. just to reiterate, um, it's important that we also acknowledge their previous sailing records. So Ridgeway went into this race, and he had... Um, had the the record with Che for rowing the boat. Now he'd done Sam sailing before, but Che Blythe had never sailed before. He'd only rowed. Uh-huh. Now Rob and Knox Johnson, he had plenty of experience. He'd previously sailed from India to the UK in the same boat he took in the race. I wonder how big this rowboat is. Uh I looked it up. I want to say it was like around 30, 30 feet ish, somewhere 30 in the third rowboat. Oh, yeah, you can't go in a dinghy that's like well, 10 Obviously, feet. I know you can't go in a dinghy, but like, how the <laughs> fuck do you row a 30-foot robo? Fuck. You just take you just turns, I guess. Go or out maybe it. one guy's got one. No, maybe one guy's got one side and one guy's got the other. I don't know. I couldn't I find know. any pictures of the robo. That's crazy. Okay. So then Locke Forgeron, he was the French dude. He'd had plenty of sailing experience. He'd previously gone from Plymouth to, Mar- uh, or excuse me, Morocco to, Mar- Morocco to Plymouth. Right. And then, of course, the man, Motissier, which we'll get into later, he'd gone from Tahiti to France via the Cape. So he already had horn experience. Yeah. He which was is huge, it up, dude. Which is huge. And then Bill King, yeah. he was a lifetime um, uh, submariner. Wow. And he'd also sailed from uh, the transatlantic West Indies. Uh, so he'd had a good amount of sailing experience. Glenn Maxwell was a submariner. She was. I believe it. And then Tetley, he'd already competed in the 1966 Round Britain race. And then Alex Carrazzo, he'd been in the Trans-Pacific 1968 O-Star race that um, uh, Chichester was in. Mm. And then, of course, Crowhurst, day and weekend sailor. Nice. Yeah. He just go catch fish on the weekends, feed the family. I guess. Cool. So, uh, basically... um, that's your fucking demo on all these boats. So, um, what was the eldest? Who was the oldest person? Do we have any ages yeah, here? Yeah, Bill Let's King get... was the oldest. How he old? was four. Uh, I want to say fifty-eight at the time. And then how old was our Frenchie? Thirty-seven. Uh, <clears throat> oh, young guy. No, no. Um, uh, Crowhurst fucking... was thirty-seven. Damn, really? Yeah, He's yeah. Fucking my age. Yeah. Can you imagine going out at your age right With now? With already like four kids. Yeah. And like a disheveled battle axe of a wife yeah already just blown out <laughs> five kids whatever and then just already by 37 just done it's over it's over doggy yep and that was just the 60s and 70s man i don't know it's pretty rough but like the um i don't know what the uh, uh like i'm curious as to what were the ages of some of these people um well like, what were the what was the range robin was probably the youngest at 28 wow uh yeah so he's 28 29 and he'd been you know a merchant marine and you know he had experience on the suhali uh because he'd previously boat built this boat in india and then the, his two friends they sailed it from south africa 
um, no, excuse me, from India to South Africa. Right. So, you know, he'd also single-handedly sailed 10,000 nautical miles by himself to London. Wow. So this guy knew what he was doing. Sure. Um, so I think he was the youngest in the race. So back to Bill King. Um, he had all this experience in um, the military and also as, uh, what do you call it, a submariner. Right. And then Montissier, he had a massive amount of experience. Yeah. So we're going to get into a little later about uh, what he'd done, but he'd sailed um, to Tahiti with his wife. He took his wife, Francois, and then nice. again sailed home. Back when there was Pashin between us. Back when there was Pashin. So, you know, Joshua, I would say if we were going to do him in rank, I would say Montissier uh, probably was the most seasoned sailor. Okay. Followed by uh, Robert Knox Johnson. And then, obviously, you throw fucking Robo Boy out of the business. Which one's Robo Boy? That was Che Blythe. Oh, yeah. So he's got to be at the bottom. But Ridgeway, his partner on the on the rowboat, he had done some sailing. Fogaron, I mean, Morocco to Plymouth, that's not a huge ride. So okay. he's probably down at the bottom. And then Tetley, he'd already been in the 66 race. So Tetley's probably three. Yeah. And then Carrazzo, with his experience in the Trans-Pacific 96, or the 1968 O-Star, he's probably in the top. So Crowhurst is at the bottom. Che Blythe, fucking bottom. Yeah. For just rowing. And then probably Fogron at the bottom. And then, then you got the Ridgeway I would put in there. And then I'd go with Bill King. And then I'd go with... Um, Excuse me, Robert Knox Johnson. Yep. Then I go with Tetley and then Montissier. These are your power rankings. These are my power rankings. If I was going to do my 1968 fantasy sale yeah, draft, yeah, yeah, yeah. that's what it would be. Uh, now I have a question. Yes. <clears throat> do you, I don't know if you get into it at all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're going to try. Do any of these other people get uh, accused of possibly cheating also? No. Nobody no. else got accused, all right. accused of cheating. That was the easy one. Well, I feel like more people would have been, uh, you know, accused of cheating. But I guess not really too many of them even made it far enough to be recognizable almost. Well, let's get into the start of the race. Let's go, baby. Shall we? Yeah. So as we know, we had these various departure dates. Now, uh, on June 1 of 68, that was the first day of the race, Ridgeway took off from Inishmore, Ireland in his, quote, weekend cruiser, English Rose 4. Now, if I'm getting in a weekend cruiser, I think I'm in the wrong boat to go around the yeah. world. That's just what my gut tells me. I don't know me. what a weekend cruiser is. It doesn't sound like a, it's a 10-month cruiser. Nope. And then you have the 8th of July, like seven days later. That's when Che Blythe, he gets in the water with zero sailing experience. <laughs> And dies. <laughs> no, I'll, no, I'm just joking. We gotta, I'm just I'll, yeah, yeah. I'll refresh your memory. But yeah. on the day he set sail, he uh, had his friends rig the boat for him and then sail in front of him in another boat to show him correct sailing maneuvers. So he literally had zero sailing experience. So then... I mean, good for him. Uh, it's pretty ballsy to just be like, here's the thing. It's not just looking at the sun. You got to know how to chart... You got to use a compass. 
And these are all things I think are pretty easy to use. Really? I mean, it's not <clears throat> impossible. It's done. People do them. I'm not. I'm not talking about like the compass that's got the magnet. I'm talking about the one that you put on the piece of paper with the pencil attached to I know. it. You I know what you're figure about. shit out. I know what you're talking about angles and shit. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So anyway, Knox Johnson, he gets underway from Falmouth uh, on the 14th. So he's third to start the race. And here's the thing. I think we talked about this last episode. <clears throat> Sailors hate Fridays. Uh, why? Bad What's, luck. They don't like the Jack Daniels rub. <laughs> I don't know what that has to do with a Friday. Friday, TGA Fridays. Oh, got it. You're reaching. Uh, so anyway, it <laughs> was super. French fries. It was superstitious to sail on a Friday. So yeah. you just never. Oh, uh, I see what you mean. So anyway, he that cramped. that that made you a weekend fisherman. He, a weekend, he, but he packs up the Suhali with uh, tin food and it's crammed full. Now his boat was so full of this tin food that he's running low to the water and super yeah. sluggish, but. Ultimately, it's a much more seaworthy boat. So he starts to gain time on Ridgeway and Blythe. Now, yeah, you got a question? No, no, no. So it, I mean, that would be like my thing, which is like, I would load out. How do you go to like, how do you just, how much food you got to take with you, man? You got to uh, load that thing up with fucking so much and then you just toss it. Yeah, I, I think it's cool to trash shit yeah. on a race like this. It's fine. I don't think that there were environmentalists losing, back losing, then. W- losing weight. Yeah, I could be Throwing wrong. It might off. be like pack it in, pack it out. You that's, know? that's how you're supposed to do it, pack it in, pack it out. But. Well, and here's the other thing. I remember a good friend of mine. When I saw Deep Water, it wasn't a good friend of mine. She introduced me to a friend of hers. And I told her how much I love with Deep Water. And she said, well, you're not going to believe this, but Crowhurst's ship is my sister ship. They were built at the same time. I have a trimaran. And she told me about, you know, being out at sea for crazy stretches of time. And my big question yeah. was, what do you, how do you shower? And she was like, what do you mean, how do you shower? shower. You don't shower. You don't shower? And I'm like, what do you mean? You don't jump in the water? How do you clean your pussy? Exactly. I'm like, what about crotch rod? And, you know, just stink. And she's like, you just stink. And I'm like, wait a minute. So you can't jump over and like get fresh and she was like not unless there's you're you're in the doldrums or just completely dead calm yeah so you could grab a bucket throw it overboard and then put it on your person right but it's salt water yeah which doesn't really feel clean i like salt water if it does feel clean to me okay i guess you like you know that freshness anyway but her, regardless it's still pretty her nasty boat yeah. was a trimaran and was the sister ship because they built two of them Right. Dad, so, that's another thing. You got to take water with you. Yeah. You got to take six months of water. Uh huh. How do you even do that? 10 months of water? I mean, you got you to get water. Um, I mean, can you even get a desalinator? Is that even a thing? I was just thinking about that too. You can maybe know, do a little enough, desalination. I don't, I don't even know if they had that back then. Oh, I'm sure they did. Desalination. So let's get back to uh, Knox Johnson. So, Ridgeway. Um, he realizes at this point, he's like, I, I don't have a legit boat. <laughs> yeah. So he also gets super lonely. So he on this is literally 17 days into the race. He made a arrange, He had a arranged rendezvous with a friend in a place called Madeira uh, to drop off 
his photos and logs and he was like, I'm going to grab some mail while I'm coming into port. <laughs> so what? he picks up the local Sunday Times issue and discovers that it was against the rules to go get mail. Oh, he didn't know. He's like, ah, oh, I just lost. And that's hilarious. He fucking- so he's 17 days into the race and realized he was like, dude, I was just getting mail. You can't disqualify me. So did somebody know? Yeah. They knew. Well, yeah. Yeah. So he didn't, he didn't, in other words, he didn't just admit who it. Who the fuck gets, I don't know if he admitted or not, but who gets into a, a 10 to 12 month I know tournament right, I know, right. and doesn't read the fucking rule yeah. box. Wait, 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 wait. I didn't think we. I, th- I just thought we can't go to port. You know, right? I thought we could just we can go to port for mail and stuff. But he was probably getting fucking Jack Mags because he got lonely. Yeah, that's what I. I mean, shit. I could use a couple Jack Mags. Well, he dismissed this as overly petty, and he said, well, "I'm just going to continue on, even though I'm in bad spirits." Ah. So his boat continues to deteriorate. And he finally decided it's not going to be able to handle the Southern Ocean. So he drops out mm-hmm. on July 21st in Recife, Brazil. Mm. And that's when he retired from the race. So, of course, we still have... Everybody's pe- stopping over in that Brazil. We still only have three people in the race. Yeah. So Tedley jumps into the race on June 30th. So you're basically uh, a month into the race at this point. And he's taking his trimaran. Okay. And remember, his wife lived on it at the time. Right. Well, he gotten sponsored by a company called Music for Pleasure. Oh. Which was a British budget record label. Okay. So he starts, you know, prepping the boat. He didn't get in the water on the 30th. He announced he was leaving. So he starts prepping the boat, which is the Victress in Plymouth, where uh, Montessier, King, and, of course, Frenchman uh, Fogaron were also getting ready. Fogaron and Montissier were friends, and they knew each other. Um, and he managed a motorcycle company in Casablanca. And, um, of course, as we recall from the top of the show, he's on the Captain Brown, which is a 30-foot steel gaff cutter. Ah. And, of course, don't forget. Uh, okay, go on. Yeah, no, go ahead. Out of all the ships, <laughs> mm-hmm. which one was like the most expensive, you think? Probably, I'm guessing, and I could be wrong on this, I'm guessing Crowhurst because he was really? probably bad managing money uh. and somebody probably oversold him a lot of shit. Uh. I'm guessing. Okay. And then um, what is, um, who had like the best shape, the best in, in shape boat? Montessier. Montessier. On the Joshua. That thing was fast as fuck. It's and like I nice, don't think the, he overloaded Who had the newest it. boat? What's that? Who do you think had the newest boat? Well, Crowhurst. Crowhurst had the newest yeah. one. Okay. Now, keep in mind, um, Knox Johnson, he had so much fucking tin sardines in there, he was sluggish, like they said, low yeah. to the water. Yeah. So he's going to pick up speed the more As he shit eats and he shits. Eats. And, <laughs> right. And D-tins. Right, D-tins. And of course, you know, so you've got these other four, they're getting ready to go in, but we all know Crowhurst isn't going to get into the last day. And uh, uh, the fucking Spaniard, uh, Carrazzo, or Italian rather, he's not going to get into the last day. So at this point, Knox Johnson's well down the Atlantic, as we discussed, and he runs into problems, which we, I don't so think... Yeah, we, I'm, I'm very sorry, yeah. but why did Crowhurst have so many issues with his boat then? If like, if, if he, if it was a newer boat? 
because it wasn't finished. Mm. He was. It wasn't. It's not like these things roll off the line. Like, give it. me a 2019 fucking F-150. So it was being built. Yeah. For him. They couldn't build it fast enough. Though. Wow. So, you know. How like, does a motherfucker who's broke like that get? We're going to get to it. Okay. You know, right. say some people aren't good with money. No. Nope. So anyway, Knox Johnson, he's he's on the on the waters, but he starts getting leaking on his keel. So what he does is he jumps off the boat and repairs the keel by diving underneath it, underneath it and cocking the seams underwater. Wow. This blows me away. That's awesome. So you need to have diving experience, not just to be on a, a sailboat. Yep. And like, I don't know. I, I don't know. Is it a caulking gun just like we do in the bathtubs? I don't know. I'm sure there's like some kind of like waterproof caulking shit. Is there's there like, like a, a method? Th- there's probably like a thing where you attach it to the part you're going to do it and it kind of dries dries it out a little bit because attached. Yeah. It's hard to explain. But that. the whole point is you got to you lock into some calm seas to do that, which Fuck I guess yeah. you can do in the the southern atlantic or mid-atlantic because it's probably summertime i mean i guess technically you are underwater so it shouldn't be all that yeah that's true i mean that's probably not as true but yeah all right well let's move on Blythe is ahead at this point but he has massive problems as well and his fuel generator is blown out and gets contaminated and he also lost his radio contaminated yeah salt water i'm guessing oh um, and then on August 15th, Blythe went into Tristan da Canha to put a message to his wife and spoke to the crew from an anchored cargo ship called Gillian Gaggins. Cool. <laughs> Sounds like a J.R.R. Yeah. Tolkien character. Yeah. Gillian Gaggins. <laughs> like a, a bad TV show from the 60s combined. Yeah. So he goes on the boat and, well, guess who's there? A fellow Scotsman. And Blythe found the offer impossible to refuse and went aboard while the ship's engineers fixed his generator and replenished his fuel supply. Well, this isn't fucking allowed either. Yeah, 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 yeah. So he's like... What do you like, mean? How do you expect me to go around the world without my generator? <laughs> so at this point, he's like, well, it's a personal request for me. I'm still going to do it. Yeah, you were going to try to get away with it, weren't you? Yeah, but it was a technical disqualification for receiving. So then, like, but again, how do they, again, like this guy, you don't know if he just purposely came out and said, yeah, I did it, like, or was he caught or? Oh, no, no. He reported in. He reported in. Yeah. So they're just, they're fucking up. They're fucking retarded. Yeah, keep happening. in mind, this is barely into the race. This is, they're so stupid. They're the fucking dummies, bro. You just would have not said anything. Nobody would have known. You didn't send the postcards. <laughs> You didn't need a new copy of Barely Legal. Yeah. <laughs> so. Yeah, dude. Cherry Magazine, whatever the fuck. <laughs> Club, bro. Club's the best. This is British shit, though. Big fucking milker titties. <laughs> big fucking. Mummies, big... milkers. <laughs> big fucking tits. Uh, okay. So um, anyway, he says, you know what? I'm still going to go on to Cape Town because I, I'm out here anyway, bro. Yeah, yeah. I'm just going to go. But his boat keeps taking a dive on him. So he pulls into East London um, on the 13th of September and quits. Now, yeah. when I read that, I'm like, what are you, we're East London? You just came home? East London is actually a city on the in South Africa. Oh. 
Interesting. So that's where he, he yeah, I guess, I guess I never really thought about it. There's probably not like that many, first of all, like companies that make boats. Yeah. Then on top of that, like commercially make boats, like for for like personal use. It's like one of those things I feel like, I guess back then, especially it's like you just had made, you didn't, and they just, you never knew if they were going to be made up to standard. Yeah, it's not like going good. out and buying a little Chris craft. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And nowadays it's become more streamlined and all that stuff. So do you it, think you could do that? Do you think that with with you and one other person? Yeah. Could I sail around the world? Even if that even if that one other person was an experienced sailor that yeah. did more or like knew everything enough to be able to teach you to what to do on the trip. Yeah. And like you can just pick up whatever. Do you think you'd be able to do that? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Just do you think you could do fuck it? Fuck each other all night with the no. dude. No. <laughs> do you think you could do it? Fuck yeah, I can. Yeah, I could definitely do it. It's a shit ton of uh, drugs and we'll be great. No, I wouldn't. No be what? Doing no that. drugs? No okay. drugs. Never mind. Um, I'm, out, I'm, I'm out then. No, the only reason I, I say that is because when I sailed on a schooner, I had a couple of guys yeah. take some acid. Oh. And I'm like, well, I guess I'm in charge. Yeah. And I also had Captain Stu, who was a notorious drunk. Yeah. And he fucking got shit tanked one day yeah. and brought a piece of uh, a woman with him on the trip. And he uh, was like, I'll be down in the forecastle, so you got the wheel. It's dark out. It's night. I'm on the Hudson River. I'm on a schooner. Fucking- My first mate is on acid on the bowsprit looking at the stars. And I got Captain Stu beaver hunting in the forecastle, and I'm the last guy. And he's just like green lights on the left, red lights on the right. And I'm at the wheel of an 80 foot tall ship. Yep. And I'm seven, 18 years old. Sick. And I'm like, what do I fucking do? Yeah. It was well, pretty scary. Well, you didn't have to really do much. I'm I sure. had to do tons. I had to steer the boat. But like, so, how much do you have to really steer it? Plenty. Do you know yeah. how narrow the Hudson River is? Just one going down the Plutomic, huh? <laughs> Plutoms. <laughs> Not like that. So you just you just combined <laughs> Plutonic and Potomac. Is that what you did? Plutonic. Thinking I was talking about the Hudson. No, you I mean, went to Plutonic. I just like the. I guess I've that's you know I don't know. So yeah. anyway, it was the best job I ever had in my life. But that Sick. was the scariest I've ever been on a boat. Oh. Because I mean, I've 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 steered a seventy-five foot yacht. Right. One time, it's pretty solid. There's it's a difference scary. between being in the in ocean Havasu. and being on a lake. Yeah. And being on a river. Wow. Okay. So, you know, um, yeah, I just remember being like, um, and Captain Sue was like, don't worry, I'll leave the radio up on the bridge or by the, you know, stern by the wheel. And if you have any troubles, just call down. Yeah. And I'd be like, what the fuck are you doing? No, I did a couple of times. I was like, "Uh, Stu, I think we got a freighter coming up on the port side here. And he pop up and he'd be like, oh, no, 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 no. That's too far away. It's not coming near you. Well, here's the problem. Captain Stu yeah. had a bad reputation before because we had a nudist cruise. Yes. Uh, he run a, he had previously uh, yes, run a nudist cruise. We talked about yes, that. Yes, he ran a nudist cruise aground by the Statue of Liberty. Yeah. So I was already a little bit wary of Captain fucking Stu. Yeah. So dude, think something about nudists fishing is unsavory to me. It's disgusting. Yeah. We've been over Getting this. There are no caught with the fucking. Yeah. Ah! There's no good looking nudists. Sorry, I didn't mean to yell. All so, right, let's but, go. Well, hold on. Sorry. There's, I didn't tell you about my sailing no, tell experience. Me, tell me, yeah. I also sailed on the Belle Anne Marie. I don't know what that is. It's a riverboat. Oh. So it was three <laughs> stories. Three stories of boats. Yeah. Did you play poker on it too? We didn't. Oh. 
but we did lots of weddings. Cool. And the reason it was a lot of fun was because the captain, he was in on the bridge up top and we only had one captain. So he could never fucking come and find us and tell us what we were doing wrong. Right. So we would just get drunk. Nice. We'd, we'd bartend, get drunk, and he could never get his eyes on us. Yeah, because he always had to be steering. Yeah, but his whole thing was no no tip jars at the bar. Pussy. No, and we were like, I whatever. So That's so dumb. Yep. Once in a while, though, there was a rat. And that was uh, that was John. Maybe he was the second mate. And, and he'd bring up uh, John to the bridge and be like, "You take the wheel." And then Captain Allen would come down and be like, "I saw you guys put tip jars out." And we we're like, "Allen, let us make our damn money." And he was like, "Okay, fine." So we had the system down where he we talked him into letting us get the tips. Okay. And we have these massive like runs of just bank and cash because we're 17 right and we're fucking pretty and you know yeah, oh yeah we're so pretty some you know we're making great money so sure. then captain allen started taking a cut of our tips good no that's, that's not how, good that's, the, that's how you compromise yeah it was bad but anyway yeah, no, uh the bell right. Anne marie yeah. and then uh the richard robbins was the uh the schooner so anyway let's get back to uh tetley so um we still have yet People still aren't even in the water, and we've already lost two. So <clears throat> Tetley set sail on September 16th, um, and then Fogaron on October 30th. Keep in mind, that's uh, he was in the water. So he's got King a few hundred nautical miles ahead of him, and then on Halloween, they both went down in a storm. Oh, so there's a massive storm and Fogaron has to hove to, but he still suffered, suffered a severe knockdown. Yeah. Now, you know what heaving to is? No. Okay. Heaving to is a way of slowing your boat down. Okay. Yeah. As well as fixing a helm uh. and sail position so that the vessel does not have to be steered. It's commonly used for a break. Okay. So, you know, you might wait for the tide or, you know, wait out a strong wind. All right. So it basically also provides time for a sailor to get below deck and to attend to issues other well, other places on the boat or if you need a break. Uh, that's what the term heaving to means. Okay. Or hove to if you want yeah, to use heave the pastors. Yeah, of course. So um, the term is also used in the context of vessels under power and refers to bringing the vessel to a complete stop. That makes sense? Yep. Okay, so we understand what the heaving to and hoving to means. Yes. Hoven. <laughs> Ho. So uh, King uh, basically allowed his boat to tend to itself. Now, this uh, is also another procedure known as lying a hole. Okay. And he had a much worse experience, uh, and his boat rolled. No. So it goes underwater. No. Yep. Lost its form, foremast. Fuck. So that's how King went out of the race. Damn, so, dude. Yeah, and I don't know if you know this, but lying a hole is controversial. Why? Uh, as far as a way to weather a storm. Okay. So lying, like I said, when you're lying a hole, you bring down the sails, you batten down the hatches, okay? Okay. And you don't drop the sea anchor or anything. But ideally, the boat should rest with the wind just forward of the beam so the boat is not broadside into the waves. 
And modern boats with thin keels may have too much windage at the bows for this technique and can come to rest broadside uh, and may not be stable at all. Okay. Here's the thing, bro. Yeah. When I'm at sea and storms are coming, yeah, storms are- <laughs> I'm batting down the hatches, bro. Yeah. I ride that shit out. No, but I mean, uh, <clears throat> I guess I just don't understand the technique of what makes it bad. I don't, I don't know. How did it roll? It just, you, because you had it too far. Well, I think it's because you have, you're you you're, you're locking the tiller leeward okay. as well. Okay, thanks for explaining that. That's like telling me a definition with the le- the word in the definition. <laughs> Dude, like, do you think I understand any of this shit? <laughs> you make you sound like you do. Sometimes I do. All right, let's so uh, let's go to October thirty first. So that's the last allowable day, as we know, and right. that's when Crowhurst and the Carrazzo get in the water. So Carrazzo, as I mentioned, was Italian, and he had some some experience. He had competed in the previous race the year before, um, but he didn't get in. That was the one that Chichester was in, but he didn't finish. So he leaves on October 31st, but he's not ready. Right. So he has to go straight into a mooring. What's that? A mooring is just a fixed position in the water. Oh, I thought it's when a moon hits you on the eye like a big piece of pie. <laughs> no, no. It's a mooring. A mooring is just a fixed position uh, in mooring. the water, but yeah. not uh, not necessarily on land. Right. So yeah, you, you just you just you fucking hold up. Yeah. <laughs> he held up right now. So, just, hey, hold up a sec. I gotta fix his mass real exactly. quick. Exactly. He's gotta hold up just to keep working on his boat. Hold up. Yep, yep, that's fucked up. And man. as we know, Crowhurst left that day as well, but He's he's a fucking mess. Yeah. His boat's not done. Uh, they describe the scene as a chaos of unstowed supplies. Now, here's the way I picture it. Like somebody like Tetley, somebody like um, Robert Knox Johnson, they have every millimeter on that boat stacked. Like you open up, really? open up like uh, a cabinet and there's like 4,800 cans yeah. of tuna fish. Yeah, yeah. And the way I see Crowhurst's <laughs> boat, it's just shit thrown into yeah, a corner. Yeah, yeah, you know yeah, what yeah, I mean? Yeah. He's like, don't worry. I'll figure it out once I'm out there. Prior proper planning prevents piss poor performance. Okay. All right. He alliteration. He did not understand the seven Ps. So you're the one that said you're a Boy Scout. Alliteration. I wasn't in the Boy Scouts, and I know that. Be prepared. Term. Or prior proper planning prevents piss poor performance. Uh, we didn't know, we didn't know that one. Okay. So anyway, Carrazzo, um, he retires on the fourteenth of November. So he was only in the water for thirteen days. Nice. And of course, we know he retired because he got a peptic ulcer and started vomiting blood. Ah. Oh. So he he that's when he went to Spain, you know, um, and then Fogaron, he's done. Oh, excuse me, King. That's when King retires on the 22nd of November in Cape Town and Fogaron uh, in St. Helena on the 27th. So here's the thing. After doing a bunch of research, do you ever go on Google Earth? Yeah. Oh, it's so dope. Yes. So all these islands keep coming up and I'm like, oh. I'm like, where, what is, what do they mean? Where are they at? Wow. So St. Helena. Uh-oh, we're just getting to near. It's Saint- located in the South Atlantic Ocean. Oh, yeah. And it's a remote tropical island uh-huh. and it's off the West Coast of Southwestern Africa. Okay. So um, I didn't know this though, but it is the island that they put Napoleon on 
in his second exile in 1815. Cool. All right, so let's get back to the Tetster. Sounds fun. So the Tetley, he rounds the, uh, the Cape of Good Hope, and he's okay. in the Roaring Forties, and this is where he hits the strong winds. Now, we talked a lot about the Roaring Forties last episode. Yep. Did you also know there's the Furious Fifties? Nope. In the Screaming Sixties? Whoa. So are those like degrees of correct these are south of uh way south of the equator yeah so sick he's in the 40s and he gets these very strong winds so he has to experiment at this point with longitude latitude lines i was was talking about the lats lats latitudes so he has to experiment with self-steering because these winds are never gonna stop so, and of course you got to take a break. You yeah. know, you got to sleep. You can't just, you're, you're sailing when you're sleeping, bro. Yeah. So he finally hits a calm in like late December and he takes an opportunity to clean the hole. And while doing this, he sees a seven foot shark prowling around the boat. Sick. He caught it. No way. He, he, he grabbed a, uh, a, a gaff, a gaff. Well, it was a shark hook. Shark hook. He baited it with a tin of bully beef. Whoa. It's corned beef, as yeah. the Brits say. And he even pulled it on board, took a photo of it. Holy shit. Yeah. Seven footer, huh? Seven foot fucking shark he caught. Wow. That'll so, slow you down a little bit. Yeah. But even then, he asks himself, why the hell am I on this voyage? And he's, you know. And then enjoyed sh- shark fin tuna. Five months into I mean, it. Uh, shark fin <clears throat> soup. Now, as we know... Crowhurst is in the water in December at this point, and this is when the lies are coming in. He's like, I'm 243 miles a day. I'm kicking ass. Yeah. Well, Chichester, the pro who'd done the race the year before. He's like, no way. Yeah, he was already way skeptical. And again, we talked about this on the last show, but to do this, to create a a fake log, it would be beyond incredibly intricate because you have to reverse navigate celestial navigation to do it right so you know because you have to describe weather and sailing conditions and you know that's just i just can't even imagine being in that position thinking i'm going to figure out how to do this i know i think that's probably why he couldn't come back because he probably tried to do it and then he looked at his logbook, and it looked yeah. like Homer Simpson's spice rack. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It was just that's a why piece starts, of shit. That's how he just starts writing like his, his goodbye letter in it. <laughs> yes. Like, ah, and we just fill it up with this shit. Um, <clears throat> well, some people think the motivation for his initial deception of creating the books was his entry into the doldrums. What was that? The what? doldrums. Is it like an area of water? Yes, they're known like, as the intertropical convergence zone. Uh-oh. Okay. The sailors call them the doldrums. Yeah. But that's where the, the sea is so calm, there's no wind, and it's where the northeast and the southeast trade winds converge. Okay. And then it encircles the earth uh, by the equator, uh, but it varies and it moves. So the whole thing is back in the age of sail, this is like in the you know the 14th century and okay. prior. You go out there to think. No, that's where you it's you get trapped out there. It's hot. It's muggy. Oh, there's no wind for your sails. Yes, and it means death. Oh shit! 
Stop. Yep. I got I got a shit real quick. We already have 48 minutes. I'm just going to stop this one right okay. now. Well, back in the age of sale, if you found yourself stuck there, I mean, you're talking about a hot, muggy climate that eventually can mean death if you don't get moving. Yeah, no wind. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so it's no good. But these calm periods could last for weeks. And even today, um, like when sailors attempt to circumnavigate, they try and get through these TCZ zones as yeah. fast as they can. Sure. Keep in mind, they got motors. Yeah, well, but yeah, they're nowadays. Just like, they're just like, give me the fuck out of this shit. Sure. Um, so Christmas comes around, and I know we talked about it briefly on the first, the round. Montissier has got his shit together. Uh, every, no, no, that wasn't Montissier that did the the, the big dinner. That oh. was Tetley. Oh, okay. So, but he, he, he did describe himself as intensely lonely at this point but crowhurst at this point um they ask him and they're like hey where are you at and he doesn't give a location but at, in reality um he that's when he was hang, hanging out in brazil yeah even though he's just like i, I can't talk right now yeah <laughs> but I'm, I'm at the horn <laughs> that's i'm horning it up right now that's where he <clears throat> yeah i mean he should have been at, at least around the cape of good hope yeah right so, um, Knox Johnson, on the other hand, uh, this is when the night he got drunk, and he, I didn't know this. He had a rousing uh, solo carol service and then toasted the queen. Nice. And then that's when he picked up the uh, Apollo 8 astronaut updates who had just finished orbiting the moon. Sick, dude. Yeah. So, and at this point, Matissier, um, he's in the flat, calm waters of the roaring 40s southwest of New Zealand. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So let's talk about rounding the horn. Um, everybody at this point, they're a little concerned about Knox Johnston because his radio wasn't working. And um, he's making good progress around the horn. And I didn't know this either. Apparently, Knox Johnston, he had a little self realization he was like maybe i should keep going too oh so he considered going for a second lap yeah and then he was like nah fuck it i'm gonna go home uh which is probably the best decision right. he could make because i don't think that boat's gonna make it around it again even though it's lightened its load obviously um so at this point Crowhurst tells everybody, uh, hey, radio's back. It's working. Uh, I'm just southeast of Go Island. Um, now, I never heard of Go Island. It's Gow, G-O-U-G-H Island. Okay. Well, it is. It's would be west of southern Africa. Okay. And it is one of the most isolated islands in the entire world wow. based on you know, yeah, you know, like how far you can get to exactly any, any other place. Exactly. So uh, there's only six people that live on the island today. Oh shit! And it's a weather station. <laughs> um, 
and it's ha- it's been maintained by British permission since 1956. British permission. Yeah. <laughs> but it's also one of the most important seabird colonies in the world. Hmm. So back to Crowhurst. Um, his generator's blown. Um, is he, this is when he just turned off the radio. And um, his position was misunderstood uh, on the receiving end to be 100 nautical miles southeast of the Cape of Good Hope. Okay. But of course, we know he's just hanging out in fucking Brazil. Yeah. <laughs> so this is, of course, when Montissier is passing nearby. Mm-hmm. by the Falkland Islands. So um, let's see. Um, he, Montissier had passed Tasmania. That's a, that's another island that I always just hear names yeah, of. Yeah, Tasmania. Do you know where it is? Isn't that off of the coast of Africa? No, it's south of um, <clears throat> Australia. Oh, that's right. Papua New Guinea. That's, <laughs> that's, that's <laughs> off the coast of Africa. No, I don't know. No, it's not. No, okay. So, uh, Madagascar. That's correct. Off the coast of Africa. Okay. Correct. So, Madagascar. uh, Tasmania is Australia's least populous state, clocking in with 569,000 residents. Oh, shit. So, that's where all the Aborigines were from. Uh, 40,000 years they'd lived there before British colonialization. Damn. Or colonization, I should say. So, um, but during that whole period, that's when all the uh, Aborigines got wiped out what was in what was known as the Black War. Aborigines. Because they accused, well, they uh, accused them of, that was when all the diseases came in yeah. and killed everybody. Um, so in a six-year period in the early uh, 19th century, 1,100 people uh, died, 1,100 Aboriginals. Oh, no. Yeah. no. So Montissier... Everybody in the press is basically saying it looks like we're looking at a Knox Johnson clocking in on April 24th. That's his, you know, ETA to arrive. And um, at this point, he knows if he gets there, um, he's got a good chance to beat Knox Johnson. And there's going to be a Legion d'Honneur. Ooh. And he was like, I don't want any of this shit. Yeah. That's the basically France's version right. of their medals and shit that was established by Napoleon. So it's the same thing. There's like a knight, there's an officer, there's a commander, there's the grand officer, the grand right, cross. Right. So <clears throat> French royalty. Yeah. So this is when he disowns all this materialism and celebration. And after much debate, again, he just says, fuck it, I'm going to keep going. Yep, I'm out of here. Which is just so ballsy to me. Um, Did I tell you before that the way he got this message to everybody, he's uh, passing a boat in the southern Atlantic, and he takes a slingshot, and he shoots the note over. Sick. And he says, just radio back to somebody and tell him I ain't coming back. Yeah, yeah. And he says, "Uh, please don't think I'm trying to break a record. Record is a very stupid word. It's C. I'm continuing nonstop because I'm happy at sea and perhaps because I want to save my soul. So at this point, um, the Tinmouth Electron is beat up. Crowhurst, uh, he wanted to make the repairs, but he knows if he goes to land, he's going to give up his position. Well, this is when he finds that Coast Guard in Argentina and, um, you know, gets everything he needs to yeah. fix the boat. Yeah. But meanwhile, 
<clears throat> people are worried about Knox Johnson because his, ra- his radio is done. It's toast, and they can't find him. Mm-hmm. So he hadn't been heard of since he left New Zealand. Oh, shit. So um, there was a NATO exercise at the time in the North Atlantic, and they do a search for him around the Azores, and then they finally uh, contact a British tanker. He did, actually, um, Knox Johnson. He did the old with the uh, the light and singled oh. a British tanker, and then they know, well, shit, he's only 14 miles, 1,400 miles from home. Nice. So he's going to win for sure. And then Tetley is on track for fastest time. Right. So fucking Tets, dude. Yeah. Tetted it up. But of course, this is when Tetley hears the crow hearse with his false positions is right behind him and pushes his boat too hard and too fast. Yeah. So, you know, that was the whole thing, man. And here's the other thing. You can't say the Tetster didn't circumnavigate make a circumnavigation. Yeah. Because technically, if your lines cross, yeah. you've now na- you've circumnavigated. You, wow, yeah, I didn't think about that. So you know, I think a lot of people forget that what Tetley accomplished yeah, is a circumnavigation. Yeah. So um at this point, uh Knox Johnson completed his voyage where it started in Falmouth. This is in July. And then um because Tetley pushed his boat too hard. Well, he has to um, worry that the boat's going to tip over. So one night he's woken up and he hears wood tearing. Oh. And fearing that the bow of the porthole might have broken off, he goes uh, deck to cut it loose and discovers that in breaking it away, it made a large hole in the main hole. Fuck. And that's when it took on the water and he had to send a mayday. To that, Damn. to that tanker. Yeah. Now, did you know? Do you, I went down a rabbit hole in Mayday, bro. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know where well, the term comes from? Um, I th- I feel like I did at one point, but I don't remember anymore. It came from the 1920s by a guy named Frederick Stanley Mockford. He was the officer in charge of radio uh, in England, and he had been asked to think of a word that would indicate distress. And would easily be understood by all pilots and yeah. ground staff in an emergency, since much of the air traffic at the time um, was between England and an airport in Paris. Yeah. He proposed the term "mayday," the phonetic equivalent of the French word "madis," which is "help me," or "madère," short for "venez madère," come and help me. And the term is no way incorporated with the Mayday holiday, which is what. May 1st, bro. You never celebrated May Day? Nope. Oh, we did when we were kids all the time. What is it about? Like, what is it for? We grab flowers and then you'd leave them on somebody's doorstep and ring the doorbell and just run away. It's like a. I know what you're thinking. <laughs> of that <laughs> game that we can't it. say. What? Something blank knocking? No, not that. I mean, <laughs> ding, ding dong ditch, you could say. Oh, but, God. But uh, no, what do you take a shit in a bag and you light it on fire? Right, right, it's right. It's just the girly version of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, the gay version. So that's when he abandoned with only a thousand nautical miles to making it. And not only that, mm-hmm. it would have been the most significant voyage ever made by a multi-hold boat. Oh, so multi-hold boats. So at this point, we know it's just Crowhurst. And at this point, he starts stressing out because he's like, I'm going to win. They're going to fucking go over my logs and I'm going to be fucked. 
So um, this is when his main radio fails in June. Um, once he learns of him being the last competitor. Right. So he basically, at this point, goes into the solitude that we yeah. were speaking of, gets into the abstract philosophy, uh, starts working on metaphysics equations. <laughs> right. Uh, d- 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 he was reading Einstein. Thank God. Um, and then um, over eight days... He wrote 25,000 words Whoa. of increasingly tortured prose. Yeah. This is when he drifts farther and farther from reality. And the boat continued sailing north uh, unattended. And then, according to the logbooks, um, on July 1st, it is assumed that's when he just jumped overboard. Yeah. Well, so, oh, boy. Uh, Montesia, he's a little bit more happy, you know. He'd already circumnavigated the world, and he's almost two-thirds of the way around at the second time. Wow. So he's running laps around he's fucking this going, baby. So, and he went nonstop during the most of the Roaring Forties. Yeah. So, and he did have a couple of knockdowns, and uh, that's when he decided, I'm done, I'm going to Tahiti. Yeah. Now, he'd been in Tahiti before. Sure. Because that's where he'd sailed with his wife uh, to France. Right. Um, so let's talk about the aftermath of the race. Of course, Knox Johnson wins and he gets the, the five grand for the press fastest time. Um, and he gets knighted and, you know, there's always been this debate would Montissier have been, uh, beat him had he gone in and Montissier will never say for sure if he would have beat him, but he leans to saying most likely I wouldn't have caught him in, as far as time is concerned. So uh, Montesia wrote a book called The Long Way, which detailed his entire journey, both um, geographically and spiritually. Wow. And Joshua ultimately was beached in other, uh, with many other yachts by a storm in Cabo San Lucas Ah. in 1982. So he had to get a new boat and um, he sailed back to Tahiti from San Francisco and he died in 1994. Ah, Nice. Good life. Yeah, he had, a, he had a nice one. There's a little bit more on Montesi we're going to knock on at the end. But uh, yeah, he had a pretty amazing life. And then, of course, you know, uh, Robert Knox Johnson, he donated all that money right, uh, towards uh, Crowhurst's family. Yeah. And then the book comes out, the, the Tomlin uh, and Hall book um, that were chronicling the last journey. The book is called The Strange Last Voyage of Donald Crowhurst. And this is interesting. We didn't talk about what happened to Tetster. No, let's talk. So Tetley comes back, and he found it impossible to adapt to his old way of life after the adventure. Jesus. He starts in a downward spiral. These people are fucking emo as hell, man. Jesus Christ. (laughs) They give him a consolation prize. Ah, They go to the fucking, what do they give him? Thousand pounds. Ah, pretty good. Yeah. I mean, they go to this, they go around the world. Bro. They got boats. He went down hard, though. Yeah. He got into some shit. Yeah. So uh, at this point, he takes that thousand and he builds a new trimaran for around the world record speed attempt. Whoa. So he builds the new trimaran and calls it Miss Vicky. It's a 60 footer. Holy crap. Uh huh. Built in 1971. Can't believe it only cost a thousand bucks back then. Thousand pounds, bro. Thousand pounds. Uh, I'm sure they still had the one and a half to one American ratio back then. Yeah. I'd have to check, but 
again, with inflation, it's probably $25,000. Oh, I was going to say a couple hundred thousand. Well, <laughs> it's not that much. No. I would say it's probably 25000 Yeah, 25000 Just off my head. So outwardly, he seemed to be coping fairly well. Um, but he uh, writes a book called The Trimer and Solo. Okay. It bombs. Yeah. So he's not doing so hot. No, no. Well, in Feb 72. Did his tour dates get canceled? Feb 72, he went missing from his home in Dover. Oh, boy. His body was found. No. <laughs> Jesus. In nearby woods. Uh-huh. Hanging from a tree oh, three days later. His death was originally believed to be a suicide. Uh-huh. But at the inquest, it was revealed that the body had been discovered wearing lingerie. Oh, fuck. And his hands were bound. Oh, no. The attending pathologist suggested the likelihood of masochistic sexual activity. Yeah. And found no evidence that Tetley had killed himself. Ah, uh, he's just a freak. Yeah, but somebody Perf. put him in women's lingerie and mm-hmm. tied him up and hung him from a tree after they were done fucking him. Yeah, it's uh, erotic asphyxiation. Oh, you think they had sex with him while he was hanging from Maybe the- not necessarily <laughs> a hanging from the tree, but like maybe he died from that, so they hung him to make it look like it was... Oh, that's an homage? Maybe, but I mean, that's how Robin Williams did it with a, woman, with a piece of woman's clothing. No, it was a belt, I thought. Belt? Yeah. Oh. Anyway... He was cremated. Yeah, you're about right. He was cremated, and then Knox Johnson and Blythe showed up for the funeral. All right, did they do the hacky like <laughs> to take the ashes into the into the ocean? I have no idea. Just blows back into your face. Can you imagine that just it being a little awkward though? Hey, well, I mean, gang's all here. I guess. What, what the fuck happened to Tetley? Yeah, dude, <laughs> did dude. you guys ever fuck? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, not too many people left in that class. Uh, well, let's get back to Blythe. Um, he was one of the rowboaters. Um, he came up with a challenge of the wrong way voyage, which is going against the prevailing winds. And in 1970, he got a boat, uh, that was sponsored and called the British steel and single handed, um, against the prevailing winds. Wow. The opposite way. Yeah. That's pretty cool. I mean, is that. How hard is that? It's much harder. You're going against the grain. Yeah. How do you even go against the wind in a sailboat? It's not. A, I mean, you just do it. It's just slower. Know. How do you do it, though? It, they don't say. <laughs> <laughs> I've always wondered how you go against the wind in the sailboat. Well, it's possible. So John Ridgway. Yeah, I feel like you have to do a lot of like tacking. Cur- curving. Yeah. Is that, is that what it's called? Tacking? Yeah. So Ridgway followed a similar course. He started at an adventure school in Scotland and circumnavigated the world twice under sail. Um, and then King Home finally pissed that he didn't do it the first time. King finally completed a circumnavigation in Galway Blazer Two in 1973. Now Sue Holly, that's Knox Johnson's boat. Uh, it was sailed for more years and went to Greenland, and then it was on display at the National Maritime Museum in Greenwich. However, her planking began to shrink. Because oh. why? The sun. No. What? <laughs> it's condensation. Condensation. I'm just kidding. It's in dry dock, so it's drying out and it's shrinking. That's what I'm fucking saying, the sun. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. That's exactly what I meant. Okay. So 
Knox Johnson takes her out of the museum and refits her in 2002. Hell yeah, baby. <clears throat> and then got her returned to water where she belongs. Yeah. Uh, if you want to go see the boat, you can find it at the National Maritime Museum in Cornwall. Which is? <clears throat> Somewhere in England. Okay. Um, Tinmouth Electron uh, was sold to a Jamaican operator. And uh, they were doing tours with it. And then they just dumped it one day and came and brock. Hmm. And that's where you can find it today. <clears throat> so um, let's talk about the Joshua. Okay, the Josh. Before running aground in uh, Cabo San Lucas, uh, it was acquired by the Maritime Museum in France, mm-hmm. uh, where it serves part of a cruising school. And then cool. um, given the failure of most starters and the tragic uh, outcome of Crowhurst's voyage, considerable controversy was raised over the race and its organization. So after they have the race, they're like, we're not doing this shit again. You yeah, know? I know, right? <coughs> Crowhurst, it's going to bring out the psychos. Like Crowhurst, we can't afford another person right. to die. But in 82, the BOC Challenge race was organized, and this was another single-handed round-the-world race um, with stops inspired by the Golden Globe and had been held every four years. Um, and, and in 1989, Philip Gentot founded the Vendi Globe Race, a nonstop single-handed round-the-world race, essentially the successor to the Golden Globe. Okay. And it's currently held every four years. And it attracts some public following in the sport. Yeah, like, I mean, how many people try it every year now? I don't know, but we should do it. Yeah, come on. No, I mean, like, like, not solo. I get that, not solo, but, but like... So what the, like, uh, so just how, how, what's the speeds nowadays? they do it in be the same it's sailboats yeah they're not going out there with outboard motors i feel like they're still they've got better boats nowadays faster boats i mean they're not only going to be so much faster not not a whole lot faster i wouldn't think Hmm. okay so a little bit on crowhurst he was a member of the liberal party um he started a business which was called the electron utilization in 62 that's when he was selling those little beacons i'm guessing okay uh, he called it the Navigator. Huh. It was a handheld device that allowed users to take bearing on marine and aviation radio beacons. And oh. he did have a little success, but once it began to fail, the whole idea of getting in the race, this will solve all my problems, and this will get me some publicity for my uh, beacon. Navigator beacon yeah. business. Yeah. So, but no. No. It didn't do that. Correct. And it just costed him $15,000 probably. Well, the other thing is trimarans are popular with sailors for their stability. Right. But if they capsize, like by a rogue wave, they're like virtually impossible to upright. Well, I mean, how many boats are possible to upright? Well, when you only have a single hull, you can get them up. Can you? Yes, but when you have a trimaran, it's really tough. Obviously, I mean, I would think it's really tough even with the regular fucking boat, thirty footer. Yeah, it's, it's doable, I guess. It's, it is doable. Crazy. And again, you got to remember the safety that Crowhurst designed on his boat. He planned to add that inflatable buoyancy bag on the top of the mast to prevent capsizing, and the bag would be activated by water sensors on the hull to hmm. detect an impending. Capsization. Capsization. <laughs> so um, the idea was if he could show that this worked, then he could go into business manufacturing these things. Ah. But of course, 
he didn't get the fucking built boat set up and built in time, you know, and he didn't, and he left spares, you know, um, he fucked up. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> he yeah. Kind of, he kind of just fucked up. Right. So, um, and there was a guy that went sailing with him, um, in early October. Okay. And, you know, he kind of described him as a little lazy on the sailing. Aww. He's like, dude, if I'm in the English Channel, I want to know right where I'm at. And he was just like, eh, I got a pretty good idea where we're at. So yeah. don't worry about it. But despite that. Uh, always, always like does one of these when you ask him where we're at. He's like looking at the sun. Like, eh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you know, we're. But he, he described the boat as certainly nippy. <clears throat> um, Is that, that means quick, right? I would have got, I would assume so. Nimble, maybe. But again, his navigation was a might slapdash, yeah. as he as he said. So um, it's interesting though, because the film crew that came out to film Crowhurst, right? They started filming filming this guy, thinking he was Crowhurst. Oh fuck! So not only were they completely unprepared, they're filming the wrong guy. Yeah. Um. <clears throat> so I just want to get into a little bit more of the mind of Crowhurst. Okay, let's get into the mind of Crowhurst. Well, yeah. If we look at the last log entries. Um, when he learned that he had the possibility of winning the prize and he's showing this increasingly irrationality, his biographers, Tomlin and Hall, believe that faced with a choice of two impossible situations, you either admit your fraud or public shame and financial ruin, um, that he descended into classic paranoia which is a, a psychic disorder, psychotic disorder in which deluded ideas are built into complex, intricate structure. Yeah. So uh, they also had a clinical psychologist, Jeff Powder, uh, uh, wrote about him a little bit in um, a book, Strange and Dangerous Dreams, The Fine Line Between Adventure and Madness. And they postulated that Crowhurst probably had a little bipolar action going. Nice little bipolaration, <laughs> which accentuated, uh, which was accentuated by his eventual psychological fraught situation, right. as evident from the later entries in the logbook. So on the 24th of June, he began to document these thoughts in a new set of writings in a second logbook that was the one that we talked about called Philosophy. And at times it's rambling, times it's incoherent, but what he was attempting to set down for the benefit of mankind, a revelation or new understanding that he believed he had discovered regarding the relationship between man and universe. Life as experienced by man was the game uh, overseen by the cosmic beings, apparently God, or several gods they discuss, right. and the devil, who set the rules by which the game was played. However, man could, by any effort of will, become one such of a second generation cosmic being himself and thereby I'm out of the game, bro. Yeah, man. I got second cosmic being status. So I don't need your fucking game. Yeah. So at that he ascended. Exactly. He ascends at that point into a world of abstract Ascension. of abstract intelligence, which is the realm of the gods. Yeah. And at that point you don't need your body. Nope. And you don't need trappings of daily life. And at one point, you don't need tins of tuna. He he wrote that this realization made him happy, and that now his problem was solved. Uh, and 
Now I will let you into my soul, which is now at peace. I give you my book. I am lucky. I have done something interesting at last. At last, my system has noticed me. So, um, whereas there's points in his writing uh, and documenting, um, he's having conversations, I guess, with Albert Einstein and God. Sick. Yep. <laughs> that reveal a tortured soul on the brink of self-destruction. While suicide is not explicitly mentioned as an escape route, Talman and Hall believe that Crowhurst, whether or not he was admitting to himself, was groping towards this eventuality with phrases such as the quick are quick and the dead are dead. This is the judgment of God. I could not have endured the terrible anguish and meaningless waiting, in fact, as well as man is forced to certain conclusions by virtue of his mistakes. So these writings were 25,000 words, man. That's like the amount of the documentary. Oh, yeah, but keep in mind, you got to write them. That takes a long time to write. Obviously. Cannot see any purpose in game. Must resign from position. And then, of course, he does that whole it's the mercy, mercy thing. Yeah. Um, Now, here's the thing. Um, They're on his boat. His chronometer uh, was missing. What's that? That's the clock, bro. No, the chronometer. Yes. Why was it missing? We don't know. Well, okay. What are the theories? Time is a flat circle. Oh, God. Here we go. So he just assumes, I'm guessing, time doesn't exist. There's no need for it. I'm guessing, postulating Depends here. And if you... Uh, if you measure time linear or circular. I think that's when he just tossed it <laughs> yeah. with, with the fucking... Time uh, doesn't exist. With the fake logbook. Because he was like, I can't anybody fucking see my fake logbook. It's going to be so, the log, so why didn't you just like fucking crash the boat instead? This way it would have been like... Go down boat. with the ship? Yeah, like no, a, but like logboat would have been gone. He could have survived. Oh, I think he just waited that sucker down yeah. and tossed it. Yeah, he wanted to. Um, and his last entry was July 1st, 1969. So they're just assuming at that point he jumped or fell or yeah. could have been hit by a rogue wave, rogue wave. Yeah, maybe. Or an accident. Um, you know, so they found the three log books, two navigational logs and a radio log. No shit. In the water? Uh-huh. No, on the boat. Oh, That's when, remember when the guys went on the boat and they were like, we, we, we have all the information. We're never going to tell oh, I thought, uh, you. I thought he got rid of it with the clock or something. No, no, no. That, okay. The fake log was the thing that they never the found. The fake log. <laughs> got yeah. it. So um, Tomlin and Hall discounted the possibility that some sort of food poisoning contributed to his mental deterioration. Oh, okay. Uh, they acknowledge that there's insufficient evidence to rule it or several other hypotheses out. They also acknowledge that the other hypothesis could be constructed involving further deception, such as that Crowhurst had perhaps faked his own death and somehow survived. Wow. Uh, might be down there with those Nazis in Argentina. Yeah, dude. chilling with the submarine people that went down in Antarctica. Recently. Uh, yeah. Well, his widow, Claire, strongly disputed the theory. Right. Um, regarding the circumstances of his death. Right. And they, she accused him of mixing facts and fiction. fiction. She, so she wrote a letter to the, time, to the Times and contended there was no evidence that her husband had intended to write a fake logbook. 
his death could equally become uh, as a result of a misadventure, uh, such as an accident while climbing the mast, uh, which a logbook entry showed that he intended to do before June 30th. Hmm. Um, well, Tomlin basically concludes and says all heroes are neurotics and starting off with this theory, he has sought to prove it by history of Donald from the earliest age until his death. So there's no actual logbooks of him like like admitting that he was going to fake it in any way. There's no proof of that. No. Ah, these guys, it's all conjecture then. I guess so. Ah, but he was lying about where he was. Well, on, then we know he the, was no, no, lying. No, he was lying about where he was. Never mind. Yeah. Correct. But we're assuming that if we know he was lying about his positions, which we've proved, yeah, that he, if he was going to come back, that everything would be faked. Right. Right. No. Okay. Now that I, then, I forgot that he was on the radio. Right. And then the third place fake plan is in effect, but then Telly goes down. Yeah. It's just like, dude, you you stupid fuck. You You're told him right you were there. making good time, You're and right it's probably because he just wanted to get home. Yeah. He's just like, I just want to get home. It's, and he was fa- sailing fast. Yeah. So fucking Tets, dude. Yeah. Tets Maggets. Um, there was an Aaron uh, Sea Search rescue um, based on his last estimated uh, corsation. Okay. And once they found the boat, the Tinmouth Council considered a proposal to exhibit the boat, charging as visitors two and six dollars per head. Hell yeah. With profits going to his family. I mean. So there's been a reappraisal, though, of Crowhurst in more modern times. Okay. You know, I think what's come around now is that commentators have viewed Crowhurst as a well-intentioned but tragic figure. Sure. Who became caught up in a situation that was initially of his own making that he couldn't control. Yeah. Now, there was a film made about him by James Marsh, Colin Furson. It's called The Mercy. And his take is he made a pretty good go at sailing around the world. He stayed out in the ocean for the best part of seven months. So in all, he achieved much more than people ever thought he could. He just didn't achieve what his objective was. Right. It was a case of overreach. It was hubris. And that's what caused the tragedy of his uh, demise. Yeah. So um, <clears throat> Jonathan Robin, Robin writes... Uh, the meaning of Crowhurst's voyage has altered greatly since the book's first publication. Uh, Crow, at the time, Crowhurst, you got to remember, he was seen as a hoaxer who came yeah. to a pathetic end. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <clears throat> and now he's most likely viewed as a tragic hero, sure. tortured soul. Um, yeah, Tinmouth, fucking liberal pussies. Tinmouth Electron has become like a ship in an allegory, a vessel to transport the reader beyond the known world into yeah. a strange and lonely realm where the reader, too, will lose his bearings and face the ultimate disintegration of the self in the cruel laboratory of the sea. The allegory of the Dave. <laughs> if you want to see The Mercy, it was released in 2018. Um, Rachel Weiss is also in it. There's oh. been numerous, numerous factual books. For further reading, I would suggest The Strange Last Voyage of Donald Crowhurst. That's the Tomlin and Hall book. Uh, a Voyage of a Madman by Peter Nichols. Um, there's beyond hundreds of plays, books. Dude, the music world is littered with songs that oh. have been attributed. Hymns? No. <laughs> no hymns. Like punk rock bands. Sick. But like, Donald's dead, Donald's dead, you know, shit like that. Um, just a couple things on Blythe. Um, 
in Ridgeway. So when they did that Rowan stuff, okay, um, they got the the British Empire medal for rowing the boat. Whoa! Yeah, so that's Sick. pretty cool. Yeah. Um, and then Bill King, he was I think you asked me ages. He was the oldest competitor at fifty eight. All right, and he described his journey entering the race as a means to recover psychologically from 15 years of service in submarines. All right. So no to any aspiring, you know, um, seems like mariners, the worst way to do that. Don't get in submarines. Um, <coughs> during the race King here's you want to hear his diet. Yeah. Dried fruit stirred into almond paste and green sprouts that he grew on board. Oh, uh, at the time of King sailing, uh, he plowed through the New Testament, the Quran, uh, and Edward Edwin Ald Arnold's Buddhist writing, The Light of Asia, including the best novels such as Tolstoy. Oh, um, he said he didn't get depressed. Tolstoy because, ironically died the same way one of his characters died. Uh, being Hank, stabbed on a train. Oh, I didn't know that. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, in 1969, King again tried and failed to circumnavigate. Uh, in 1970, he was ready for another attempt using the Galway Blazer II. Uh, ill health and hole damage forced him to put ashore in Australia. Um, and listen to this. He gets on the boat and a large sea creature damaged his boat 400 Whoa. miles. Whoa. Uh, southwest of Fremantle. Only uh, his skill and heroic efforts were able to keep the vessel afloat until jury repairs could be made. Dude, just the fact that you don't even know what kind of creature it was is kind of cool. They say maybe it's a whale or a shark. Well, obviously. But here's the thing. What is it going to be, a fucking octopus? So he goes below deck, and he heard a shattering sound and saw the hole below the waterline bulge inward and start splintering. So... It's got to be a massive whale or a shark, unless it's something we don't know. Huh. So then he heads up to top deck uh, and healed the boat so that the hole was lifted out of the water. And he had to hang over the side and submerge himself to carry out emergency repairs with material that included 13 ropes, sticky tape. Cool. Kind of like sticky strips. Yeah. <laughs> collision yeah. covers, sheet copper, and sponge rubber. Then he had to fix the inside of the hold as well. After three days of work, he was able to return to Fremantle, barely able to limp into uh, port. But as a result of this, the Cruising Club of America awarded King the Blue Water Medal in recognition. Recognition. Cool. Recognition. <laughs> recognition. 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 So remember Fogaron? Yep. Couldn't find anything about him. Oh. Nothing. Asset. Yeah. CIA. Tetley, before he got murdered in that women's lingerie? M MI6. <laughs> he was the first British sailor to circumnavigate the world in the solo trimaran, which I mentioned. Sick. And Carrazzo, even though he had that peptic ulcer and ditched in Spain, Not. he became the first Italian to cross an ocean solo. Um, hmm. So he was the first to cross the Pacific Ocean approximately 5,500 miles on a single-handed sailboat from Tokyo to San Francisco feet no one had been able to manage before. Wow. And of course, <clears throat> my man, Bernard Montessier. Yep. So he grew up in... The baguette faggot. He grew up in Indochina. So that's Whoa. where he was born. And his first boat was a Chinese junk. Mm. 
And he's been most of the shit we get from China. <laughs> well, here's what's interesting. He had been sailing and he his Chinese junk was called the Marie Therese. Okay. And he want in he wants to sell it back to France. Is that supposed to be like Mother Teresa in a different language? Yeah, maybe. And what he did is he springs a leak in the Indian Ocean and he goes under the boat and fixes his shit during a monsoon. And then he runs aground in an island by the name of Diego Garcia. Now this, do you know about Diego Garcia? No, but I'm... (coughs) Okay. Diego Garcia is an island um, of the British Indian Ocean Territory. So it oversees territory, just so you know where it's at. It's in the Indian Ocean. Okay. It's just south of the equator. It is the largest of 60 small islands of the Chagos Archipelago. Archipelago. Thank you. Well, what happened is the Portuguese originally found this island. Okay. Then it was the French. The French had it. Yeah. Well, in 1966, it had a population of 924 people. All righty. Now these people that lived there were indigenous people, and um, they were called the Chagosians. Oh. Okay. Now here's the thing. How do you spell that? With an I N C H A G O S S I A N S. Wow. So here's the thing. The Brits. Are they Armenian? No. Okay. The Brits and the Americans, they team up uh-huh. in the late 60s and it forcibly expel all of the citizens there because they want to establish a secret base. Ah. Uh. I never heard of this island. Well, why do we, why would you have to team up to get rid of nine hundred people? Well, no, I mean it's it's I get it. It's a partnership. I understand. So the whole point is in two thousand nineteen, the Hague gets involved and the United Nations, you know, they get involved and they're like, You fuck some shit up down here. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? But it, strategically it was a perfect location for a bomber base in the Indo-Pacific region. Right. Um, along with Anderson Air Force Base, Guam. So the whole thing is they go the what's interesting about this island is it didn't have indigenous people there until the 18th century. Interesting. Which is it's very interesting. So these Chicosians, they're living on the island, and then the government plural yeah in the uk and the u.s they're like we need this shit yeah you guys gotta gotta go displace your ass so listen to this you go to that they're like they're like hey you're a little sick you got to get off the island and go get some medical help yeah you're not allowed to come back sounds like the uyghurs to me that's the thing once did you kick them off yeah they can't come back they uyghured their asses well listen what else they did what else for people that wouldn't leave willingly yeah they'd be like we're gonna kill your dogs yeah and they killed all their pets. Whoa. So in 2015, Colin Powell, his former chief of staff, by a gentleman by the name of Lawrence Wilkerson, said yep. Diego Garcia was used by the CIA for nefarious activities. He said that he had heard from three U.S. intelligence sources that Diego Garcia was used as a transit site where people were temporarily housed, let us say, and interrogated from time yeah. to time. 
get mo. And what I heard was more along the lines of using it as a transit location where when perhaps other places were full or other places were deemed too dangerous sure. or insecure. Or too many rats. Yes. Um, in 2004, the uh, British Foreign Secretary denied this. Well, Diego Garcia has rumored to have been one of the locations of the CIA's black sites. And in 2005, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed uh, was one of the high-value detain, de, 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 detainees Thank you. suspected to have been held in Diego Garcia. Wow. So um, I guess this was confirmed. Oh, hold on. Let me see here. In October 2007, the Foreign Affairs Select Committee of the British Parliament announced that it would launch an investigation of continued allegations of a prison camp on Diego Garcia, which it, claim, which it claimed were twice confirmed by comments made by retired U.S. Uh, General Barry McCaffrey. Mm-hmm. He contributes all the time to MSNBC. Yeah. So that's crazy, dude. How did I never hear about that? Well, they do a good job of keeping that shit under wraps. <laughs> No cameras in here, I see. Yes. Furthermore, on July 31st, 2008, an unnamed former White House official alleged that the United States had imprisoned and interrogated at least one suspect on Diego Garcia during 2002 and possibly 2003. Hmm. Uh, Manfred Nowak, one of the five UN special reporters on torture, said that credible evidence exists supporting allegations that ships serving as black sites have used Diego Garcia as a base. The human rights group Reprieve alleged the US, uh, that the U.S. operated ships moored outside the territorial waters of Diego Garcia were used to incarcerate and torture detainees. Mm-hmm. So, yep. Wild. Uh, anyway, back to Montessier. This is, you know, after he ran aground in Diego Garcia. So at the time, he didn't have modern navigational instruments, and he was um, he was aware of his latitude via sextant observation. So he's got, like going 18th century here. Okay. But he was estimating longitude, and as he tells in the book Sailing to the Reefs, he neglected a three-knot ocean current, which led him to running aground. Oh, no. He was provided a berth there on a supply ship traveling to and from uh, Meridius Island. Have you ever heard of Meridius before? No, but I assume it's it, somewhere on the meridian. <laughs> it's actually known um, as the Republic of Meridius. It's an island. It's it's east of the Gask. Okay. So it's I don't know where the Gask is. Gas Madagascar. Oh, the Gascar. <laughs> the Gaskies. So it's east of Madagascar. So anyway, gas. he gets um, uh, a travel, or I guess, I don't know how visas work over there yeah. anyway, but they, sh- they send him off. Hang this flag. They send him off to the Meridius Island. And at the time, um, it was run by a private company based in Meridius. I'm speaking of Diego Garcia. Mm-hmm. It was run by Meridius. Yeah. So he gets stuck on Meridius and worked for three years before he could come up with enough money to sail again on a boat that he built for himself. So at this point, he sailed um, to South Africa and the West Indies 
But on a trip from Trinidad to St. Lucia, he once again shipwrecked no. due to physical exhaustion. Oh, boy. So um, he gets picked up and taken back to Trinidad by his friends. And that's when he decided to go to France. Um, so that's when he, I'm guessing he found uh, Francois, married her, and then headed to Tahiti. So wild, man. Uh, they, called yeah. him, they called him the vagabond of the South Seas. That was wait, what is a vagabond exactly? Just a drifter. It's okay. like a gypsy, but it means okay. I think it means it's like uh, 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 you're on the seas, <laughs> you know? Yeah, vagabond. You're just vagabonding around. Yeah, a person who wanders from place to place without a home or job. Yeah, like Kane, like Kane, Kane. Oh, yeah, from, from Kane and Abel, Kung Fu. Oh, okay, gotcha. <laughs> so anyway, after this experience, he wrote a book. Uh, which allowed him to um, have money to build what would be his uh, longest boat that he traveled on, which yeah. is the Joshua. Nice. Which was in honor, of course, of Joshua Slocum, the first person to sail around the world solo. Oh. So, um, yeah, man, what a wild life. So when he went and uh, headed off in 63 to Tahiti, he just he and Francois dropped the kids off in boarding schools. I don't know if I could do that. Just yeah, ditch I mean, my kids right. to just go traveling. Yeah. So anyway, um, they were going, they were they were at sea for two years and they realized they're running out of time and had just eight months left to return to their children. So he proposed at the time sailing to Joshua, not via the Indian Ocean and Suez Canal as he originally planned, but eastward um, through which is the worst place to go through the, around the Cape. Yeah. The, the horn. The bad one. Yeah, yeah the bad one. <laughs> the bad Cape. So anyway, when he arrived in France in 66, they had, at the time, without intending to, they completed the longest nonstop passage by a yacht in history at 14,216 nautical miles over 126 days. Damn. So, but nobody knew it was a world record at the time. Yeah. And then he does the other world record, which was almost 40,000 nautical miles by circumnavigating the globe and then going another two thirds. Wow. So this man is the ultimate. Yeah, yeah. He's the He's shit. Legit. Yeah. Um, he talked He's about- like what all those paintings in like hotels are. Like from, they're like him. <laughs> it's like some like French dude with the turtleneck that's like kind of- Started off red, now it's kind of brown. Well, <laughs> when he was on the voyage, um, he became depressed. This is the the Golden Globe race. Yeah. And he discovered yoga and found that that controlled his moods. And that, according to his uh, book, is when he decided he wasn't going to go to Europe because what Europe is where all of his worries were. So, right. um, and he also wanted to go back to the Galapagos Islands. Wow. I mean, I don't know why this just strikes me the way it does, but it just blows me away that that he did this. So... um, Galapagos. Yeah. um, Just the numbers on that final journey, 37,455 nautical miles in 10 months. So... And and that boat did get knocked down multiple times. Um, But uh, he put in... June 21st, 1969 in Tahiti and 
that was the exact same port that he had set out for uh, to Spain with his wife a decade earlier. <laughs> so, um, and then I guess after that, he hooked up with another another woman. Nice. Eilina uh, Dragachi. She had, he had a son. And uh, they eventually moved to the atoll of Ah, A-H-E, um, where he started growing fruit and vegetables. And then Eilina encouraged him to move to America to complete films about his sailing. Uh, but he was like, nah, fuck that. I'm just going to take off, get back on the Joshua. And then I told you that the Joshua eventually wrecked in Cabo San Lucas. Yeah. And uh, it was salvaged for 20 bones. Wow. Yeah, didn't get much. Yeah. And then gotta get he, rid of it. Got to get it out of there. He eventually um, went back to Paris and wrote his biography called Tomata and the Alliance. And he became an environmental activist who protested nuclear war in the South Pacific. Hmm. And um, like I said earlier, he died in 1994. He's buried in Brittany, France, and visitors go to his grave and they leave slingshots. Nice. Yeah. And then, of course, the hero, well, not the hero, but I would say the unhung, unsung hero of the entire thing, old R&J, the Robert Knox Johns, yeah. gets knighted, as we know. Um, he also won uh, with Sir Peter Blake a Jules Verne trophy. Ooh. Uh-huh. Uh, Yachtsman of the Year. And in 2007, uh, did you read that in Yachtsman Quarterly? No. <laughs> didn't catch it, this, this uh, issue. And in 2007, at the age of 67, he set a record as the oldest yachtsman to complete a round-the-world voyage uh, in the Velu Five Oceans race. Wow. Um, he also two-handed um, the round uh, Britain race, and that was with Peter Blake. And, I mean, he, you look at his resume, it's just full of, you know... Yeah, yachting. Skippering highlights. Sure. That everybody would love to have on their desk. Um, when they won the Jules Verne Trophy for the fastest circumnavigation in 1994, their time was 74 days, 22 hours, 18 minutes, and 22 seconds. So much, much faster than that attempt in 1969. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> a lot. I mean, it was a fourth of it almost. Yeah. So I guess you're right. Maybe the boats got faster. Faster and more. I, well, they were on a catamaran. That's why. So I guess you're right. The catamaran's much faster yeah. than any of these old catches, sloops. Junks. Junks. <laughs> and um, yeah, it, it's interesting. Um, during COVID-19, um, he was several notable figures interviewed um, about experiences with social isolation. Hmm, interesting. Yep. And nice. in 2022, Suhali's famous compass, which had been stolen soon after the completion of his 1969 circumnavigation, mm -hmm. it was left in the Holyhead Maritime Museum by the wife of the deceased theft thief. Oh. So she knew it belonged. Uh, that's nice. Yeah. So that's it. That's your boys. Wow. That's all nine of them. Nice. Interesting lives. Yeah, yeah. Um, I said earlier I could do it. You know, if I was in the galley making food and somebody was doing the work. Yeah. I don't think I could do it. No. It was a shower thing. It's just the too shower, much. Yeah. Yeah. And Contra. I've I've tacked on boats before in like fairly calm waters and just hanging over on the bowsprit, 
you know, I was doing it without, you know, gearing in case I fell in. Mm -hmm. But I fell off a boat once and almost died. Wow. Yeah, I was coming into dock and I was on um I was on the stern and I had the rope and I my job was to jump off the boat and get on the dock and grab one of um, you know, the the ropes yeah, yeah. and tie it up yeah. on the knot. And I'm on the back of the boat. And I fell in the water wow. as the boat's coming, coming to the in. dock. Jesus. So I submerged, I'm submerged under yeah. the water and I put my hand out oh boy. and somebody grabbed it, no. my buddy, and yanked me up right in time as the boat came into the dock. Awesome. So that's the close. I think that's probably my closest I've ever come to death story before. Wow. Besides like swerving on the road, you know, and missing a car or something yeah. like that. I went completely underwater and then... I, I couldn't grab onto the boat. I just put my hand in the water and I felt two hands grab me and rip me up and pull me back in. Wow. And I don't know if I would have died, but I would have gotten smushed really Something. fucking bad. Yeah, smushed. I mean, if it would have got my rib cage, I'm probably yeah. dead. Yeah. If not, I don't think it was coming in hard enough for me to like cut off a leg or an arm. Yeah. But it, close. it was close. So thank you, Brian Atkins, for saving my life many, many years ago. So... That's a wrap. Yeah. With this episode. Um, uh, I hope you enjoyed it. I did. Uh, I hope you got everything answered that you wanted answered. Yes. And uh, of course, listeners, um, we appreciate your support. Drop us a line on the socials. Um, and then we'll be back next week with episode what, Dave? 49. 49 of Down on the Docks. Thank you, uh, Broccoli Farms. Shout out to the Discord. Uh, SNL Yoshi, we appreciate your... Uh, your support, you and Cooper Kramer, um, Delirious Biscuit, and RSB68 for the amazing memory. We can't do this show without you, and we're grateful for your support. Until next week, my name's Chris Neff. I'm Dave. And we are down on the docks. Later.